The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Attending traumatic events that are often life or death situations, for many of us, we do our best to avoid. However, when you're a first responder, you have made life and death events your livelihood or pastime. Post-traumatic stress disorder is commonly referred to as PTSD, which is a type of anxiety disorder. Approximately 10% of emergency workers suffer from PTSD in comparison to 4% in the general population. But what happens to a first responder that greatly serve and care others when they need help themselves? What happens to our first responders who suffer from PTSD? Today we speak with consultant psychiatrist Dr Matthew Samuel at Hollywood Hospital who is the clinical lead for Trauma Growth and Recovery Program for military and current serving members, DVA patients, as well as conducts PTSD programs to support first responders. We hope our discussion today shines much needed light on PTSD in first responders and helps to reduce stigma, opening our hearts to care for the very people who devote so much of their life in caring for others. How common is PTSD in first respondents? So thank you again uh, for the opportunity. And uh, it's a a real um, pleasure to talk about PTSD. I think um, to talk about PTSD is quite important in this context um, for a few reasons. One, we are facing a pandemic. We are in the middle of the pandemic. And then we had the very devastating bushfire not so long ago, uh, both in the eastern seaboard and in Western Australia as well. And these are all real emergencies. And then we had quite a few long weekends and uh, we had um, uh, quite a few crashes, motor vehicle accidents. So people's lives can be turned around and PTSD is something which walks around um, you know, with us all the time. But unfortunately, it is the least recognized and where people don't get help and where people don't uh, realize that they have PTSD as well. So I think today uh, I would like to talk more about the first responders. When I talk about the first responders, they are our police officers, our ambulance um, paramedics, volunteer firefighters, uh, career firefighters, uh, prison officers, lifeguards, park rangers, um, surf life-saving people. So you can think about a variety of people who are paid and not paid to do their work uh, to keep us safe around the community. Um, It is calculated that there are more than um, 80,000 full-time first responders in Australia, and uh, it is recognized that uh, one in 10 people uh, of these emergency workers will have PTSD at some stage. So that is about, um, you know, roughly, uh, you can say 10% of the people who are um, first responders will have symptoms of PTSD. And are there different types of PTSD? Well, DSM-5 recognizes there is only one type of PTSD, uh, but there are different stages of PTSD. So people can have acute stress reaction, um, chronic stress reaction, uh, and then people have can have full-blown uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, PTSD uh, became very common in the late, uh, the diagnosis started uh, getting more and more traction around 1980s and with the Vietnam veterans uh, agitating in the United States, that is when it had more um, uh, scientific uh, evidence and literature-based studies and things like that. So uh, for a simple person, I could say there is something called syndromal PTSD, which is PTSD in full-blown symptoms. And there can be a sub-syndromal PTSD in which uh, there are people who are suffering from some of the symptoms, but they may not have all the symptoms of PTSD and they will be still working. And these are the people who really suffer silently and they never get any help unless or until a crisis happens to them. And then so what are the symptoms that they should be looking out for in themselves and in others around them, their colleagues Yeah. So uh, I think we um, categorize the symptoms into four major headings. One is they re-experience the symptoms. So they will have symptoms coming back to them quite often. 
um, like a movie coming back into their mind very often. And the second group of symptoms is called the avoidance symptoms in which they try to avoid any kinds of stimulus or triggers. For example, if somebody uh, had to go and rescue a child from a swimming pool, um, they will have trouble going back to those swimming pools or any swimming pools around, or they will have problems in, um, you know, in the screaming of the kids or the screaming of the parents. They just tend to avoid all those kind of things. Uh, people who have had issues in busy shopping malls tend to avoid shopping all the time, or people who have had motor vehicle accidents tend to avoid uh, going through some of the roads. Or, you know, in an in a very, um, uh, you know, if there is a severe PTSD, people even find it difficult to get on a car. Uh, they, the third group of symptoms is what we call as a negative cognition in which they feel quite depressed, feel quite um, despondent. They feel that it is not worth living anymore. They will have a lot of dark thoughts. And then the fourth group of symptoms is called the arousal symptoms in which they find it difficult to sleep. So they will be having significant broken sleep. Uh, and uh, they will be very irritable, they will be very angry, and they may not realize that they are getting angry and irritable unless somebody taps on their shoulder saying that, what the heck is going on? So these are the main four um, uh, different headings. And when we call about talk about the subsyndromal PTSD early on, some of the people may not have all the uh, symptoms under those four categories, but uh, they can have some of the symptoms. So it is very important that people need to recognize if there is lack of sleep, they're getting more irritable, angry, depression, um, they tend to avoid, they're getting re-experiencing the symptoms, they need to get professional help. And are there particular risk factors that will increase their risk of PTSD? Obviously, attending a traumatic event, but when that's a part of your daily work, yeah. what are the what are the risk other risk factors that we might not be thinking about? Uh, that's a very good question, um, and I think um, scientific evidence have shown that, especially with first responders, there are few categories of incidents when people have uh, done or experienced or witnessed or had to attend over the course of the time. Um, and it can be uh, death, uh, a line of duty, of, you know, a death in the line of duty, injury to themselves during any uh, major um, uh, incidents, uh, suicide of a colleague uh, has been proven to be uh, quite um, uh, important um, in, in this um, situation. Uh, we are aware that uh, it is well known that Australian Federal Police recently have gone through a number of, uh, unfortunately, number of their members um, taking their lives. So they are rolling out a, a major uh, program called the SHIELD program to look at the uh, mental health of um, uh, the federal police officers. So that is another thing. Um, the other common um, incident in which people can get PTSD is injury or death of a child. Uh, has been proven to be uh, quite uh, a triggering factor for a lot of people, especially if they have got children in that age or they have got grandchildren in that age. Um, and then the other, um, you know, um, trigger factor is media attention. I mean, uh, although media, we know that, you know, they are um, known for sensationalism, but they don't realize that what damage it can do to the first responders whose um, images or whose story can be a, a sensational news for 24 hours, but that can have a long-standing impact on people. Um, then the other uh, unfortunate thing is that, you know, workplace bullying and harassment or betrayal of a colleague has been proven to be a major risk factor for people with PTSD. So these are some of the known um, triggers or risk factors uh, scientific evidences have proven over the last many years, which can predispose to produce PTSD at a later stage. And is PTSD something that can catch up on you, meaning that you can attend an incident and at the time, and maybe a few weeks after it, not really, you know, you're not really experiencing any symptoms, but months, perhaps even years later, yeah. you're getting these flashbacks all of a sudden. Absolutely. I think, again, a, a very great question. Um, I think there is something called acute trauma, and acute trauma can react to um, various kind of reactions to a lot of people. 
Uh, and then there is what we call as the cumulative trauma in which there is a lifetime exposure of events. So we see police officers and ambulance workers and fire service who would have done 15, 20, 25, 30 years of their work. And now they come back to us by saying that they are finding it difficult to sleep. It's not that one job which would have made them having PTSD, but it is a number of episodes and how these episodes have been uh, managed and um, or looked after after each episode and that is where the important aspect of workplace um, you know modifications support for you know these people after each incident all that all does matters so some people can have i've seen one police officer who has barely worked for 12 months and had a major crash um, you know he had to attend to and he developed ptsd and he he's finding it difficult to work but yet i see um, you know some other people who have worked three or four years in major crash investigations who have done hundreds of crashes over the period of time. Uh, and then they uh, break down at some stage in which they find it difficult to get on with their life. And then what makes that individual different from the other individual, one that can cope for years? Yeah. You know, they must think, oh, you know, they've taken years to become a policeman or a policewoman. Yeah. And then they feel like they've let themselves down if they've just done a year of service and they've got PTSD and they've and then they look and see colleagues that have been in the profession for years and they think what is the difference between that person getting affected and may not or vice versa absolutely and I think uh, again that has intrigued um, scientific researchers and psychologists and psychiatrists for many years why one person get PTSD and not the other one I think there is no single one answer uh, PTSD like any other illness is a multi-dimensional illness so it depends on how you were born into a family, how you were raised as a child, what kind of values and morals you had. Um, you know, how do you react with um, trauma and stress when you are young? Uh, whether you had trauma yourself when you were young. And then we also talk about um, number of comorbidities as well. So I think, you know, people with PTSD, it has been shown that there has been incidents of uh, major depression, alcohol abuse and anxiety disorders, which make them have PTSD as well. So uh, rather than, I think, again, it is a very stigmatizing illness. Um, so people tend to not to get help because they think that, well, it is not happening to me or, you know, a PTSD is not something which will happen to me. It is somebody else's story and not my story. Um, and that is when it is important that um, people need to get uh, professional help. Um, and get a checkup, um, mental health checkup every now and then. We talk about physical checkup all the time, but I think um, there has there is a time which has come now when we talk about mental health checkup as well. That is when we can pick up some of these problems. And so the when and how and who do you get your mental health checkup from? Yeah. So I think we have got an excellent uh, primary health system uh, in, in this country. We have got excellent group of psychologists. Uh, we have mental health um, um, support uh, from the Medicare and from the private health funds. So they can get checked up in any primary care network uh, physician, such as a GP. Um, and uh, the GPs always, uh, you know, they are uh, trained most of the time to recognize some of the symptoms. But if they are in doubt, they usually refer them to a psychologist or a psychiatrist who are appropriately trained to diagnose PTSD. Uh, there are a lot of self-help scales, but that's not simply enough to diagnose PTSD because you need to have an in-depth clinical review. And as I mentioned before, we need to take history about their childhood, their um, adolescent life, their adult life, how they manage trauma, family history of psychiatric illness, assessing comorbidities. And also, very importantly, we need to look at their workplace as well regarding what can be done or what could be done or what has actually went wrong and how can that be rectified. So then as a psychiatrist, how do you diagnose someone with PTSD? Yeah, I think um, primarily we rely on um, our clinical review. So we take about an hour in the first time uh, to look at um, their childhood, their um, uh, their growing life, their school life, how they dealt with trauma, their um, adolescent life, their adult life, uh, family history. We look at uh, different symptoms of PTSD. As I mentioned before, we look at the major four headings. Uh, and then we also look at the comorbidities because comorbidity is an important thing where people have got depression, then we need to deal with that. If they have got alcohol or prescription substance use, basically for helping with sleep 
and reducing their anxiety, then we need to deal with that. And if they have got anxiety disorder itself, then we need to look at that as well. So uh, it is an in-depth, sometimes it takes two or three assessments. Uh, I've actually had various stories in which people come to me with their hands um, completely tied and they say, oh, well, I'm here because somebody else told me to come here. And then they walk out. They walk out uh, with this astonishment on their face by saying that I never thought that in my life that I will have PTSD. But when I tell them bluntly on their face, look, um, you know, my friend, you are suffering from PTSD. You should just see the astonishment on their face uh, because uh, they think that, as I said before, PTSD is not my story, it is somebody else's story. And I keep saying that, no, it is actually your story. Mm. And the other, the other amazing thing is that when they go back home and when they share this story with their partner or children, they would always say, well, we knew that, that you were not right, but we never had the courage to tell you because we didn't know how you will react. And then they come back second and third time with much more ease to talk about their symptoms and they are a bit more open. And you should see the relief on their face. And that is actually, as a doctor, a most rewarding thing by saying that, well, at least I've actually told you what you have, and now it's time for you to do something about it. So uh, it, it takes some time. For some people, I've actually had uh, a person coming and telling me, you know, for five or six times appointments, I'm not telling you my story. You know, you're not trying to make me a nutcase. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm not uh, confident to tell you because I'll be out of my job. Mm. So it took him six or seven sessions before he could have trust in me and open up by saying that, well, it is a safe thing to tell the story. And um, it's a place where you will not get judged and where you will get appropriate help as well. And so you, you've been talking about comorbidities so having a comorbidity increases your likelihood of PTSD? Yes, it does. Uh, so a lot of people uh, with major depression, anxiety disorders and alcohol abuse um, has been shown that uh, there is a higher incidence of PTSD in these uh, group of individuals. And is it the fact that often they're using those medications to self-soothe from the symptoms? Yes, it's almost like a self-medication. People use alcohol. Uh, or illicit substances like cannabis or, um, you know, amphetamines, uh, cocaine, um, MDMA, you name it. And then uh, there is a growing evidence of uh, people who uh, use pres prescription drugs. So they'll go to the GP and say they are not sleeping. So that sleeping one month will end up being not sleeping for 12 months. And then you look at the number of uh, benzodiazepines they take. It is almost like they get tolerant very quickly. And uh, what happens is that um, then they get addicted to, so from one illness, they go to another illness. Uh, so unless we sort that out, then we find that, you know, we not get the real symptoms of PTSD, which is what is underneath. To really get to the core of the issue or yeah. the what where the major suffering is coming from rather than just alleviate the symptoms. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then how do you prevent yourself? So, you know, I mean, some as you said, these are people's careers. Yeah. And is there ways that they can actually prevent themselves from getting PTSD? Well, uh, I think, you know, I mean, prevention is something which uh, has been thought about for any, any illness. You know, we need to think about primary prevention, secondary prevention and tertiary prevention. I think, in my opinion, the prevention should start from the day in which they enroll as a first responder. They need to be told, you know, that, look, this is uh, a possibility uh, that you should not be um, avoidant about uh, the symptoms. It is actually okay to tell that, you know, look, you are actually not um, feeling very well. Uh, you need to get some help. That doesn't mean that uh, you get kicked out. I think the main issue that people worry about uh, coming forward, you know, uh, again, uh, there is this male attitude. I think, um, you know, most of these first responders had higher ratios of male to female. So it's a male working culture. So where you will not cry, you will not say that um, you are unwell, that you have to soldier on, you don't uh, be, you're not the weakest person in the uh, whole group um, and that you have to carry on, soldier on with things even if you are broken down. So uh, I think primary prevention is we need to look at in terms of uh, even before they become a uh, full-blown um, um, you know, first responder, we need to tell them at the inception that this is what is going on. And this is what you can actually experience when you become a first responder. Because you're going to walk into, when that alarm 
alarm rings or when that siren you know goes or when the phone rings you're going to walk into a thing which you are not aware of what is what you what you expect irrespective of the training you had you can walk into some of the uh, issues without realizing that you're getting into a bigger mess so it is important that primary prevention secondary prevention is when uh, pe- when people get early symptoms we need to identify uh, those symptoms uh, we need to have strong employing uh, sorry the ap services for people to get help uh, and then we need to have a very strong primary care uh, system with the uh, good uh, collaboration with the psychiatrist or experienced psychologist to um reduce the symptoms and then the tertiary prevention is basically you know we look at um, uh you know what happens once you have an illness how do you manage it so that um you know involve the workplace rehabilitation return to work program uh, adequate support uh, for the uh, employee and for the family as well in terms of looking after them so i think again we look at these things and i think we are a long way in terms of achieving any of these things but i think that we need to start the di- dialogue now so that we can you know get somewhere in the next 5 to 10 years and so what are the effective treatments in ptsd so there are um, a number of effective treatments so uh, i'm a psychiatrist so so i employ medications medications are not the exact answer and a lot of people i think when they come and see me they'll say even before they start conversation doc i don't want any medications we are not here to medicate everyone we are not here to make a zombie of everyone i don't think medication is something which we push at all but medications are used for reducing the nightmares um having better sleep at night and to reduce the depressive symptoms we use medications to uh, reduce the alcohol craving alcohol uh, withdrawal symptoms and uh, also to manage um anxiety symptoms as well but equally i think the most powerful treatment we have is uh, psychotherapy and that involves individual therapy in which you go and see a psychologist who's experienced in ptsd uh, unfortunately there are not many people who are you know dealing with good in dealing with people with ptsd so we need to identify who those people are there are sort um, you know now um, great uh, new treatments have come up in the last many years you know people have employed emdr uh, which has been proven to be very good uh, the prolonged exposure or pe treatment is another one now we talk about digital age virtual reality is something which is actually coming up in management of ptsd so you have virtual reality goggles in which we recreate the symptoms and uh, recreate the episode and then expose people in a gradual careful measured way so that um, we can reduce the anxiety symptoms equally powerful treatment is the group therapy uh, in which we have um, five or six or seven people with ptsd coming together under the guidance of an experienced psychologist and then whereby we uh, give uh, treatment in terms of psychoeducation relaxation identifying symptoms so uh, we are starting a, a new uh, treatment um, you know in the ansac house in the city mm. for the first responders and uh, there we are uh, again uh, we're very much committed to improving the symptoms of ptsd and ultimately the treatment is for people to get back to work a lot of people say that when they come to treatment that's the end of the road no it is the beginning of the road in which we can improve um, the longevity of that person working in that place so that they can get back to work a brief period of absence from work under medical supervision but making sure that these medications and treatments are um are, are given under the appropriate guidance of psychologists and psychiatrists is the way to go forward so we are uh, looking at uh, a 17 to 18 days of program in which people come in the morning around 9:30 and then leave around 3 o'clock in the afternoon um it will be a group therapy facilitated by experienced psychologist um and with psychiatrist so they come in the morning uh, and what we employ is um again uh, cbt uh, schema therapy uh, prolonged exposure and to uh, discuss the trauma and how to um, walk with that trauma um, in the rest of the life and how to actually you know say few things about the trauma and also to know that i think group therapy is very important so that people realize that they are not alone a lot of people with ptsd think that they are they are alone and this experience is just for them and it doesn't apply to anyone else but we want to share that we want to show that this is um a thing which has been 
around for a long period of time people have experienced this people have talked about various symptoms but we want to say that this is ptsd we want to give that uh, treatment so it involves group therapy it involves individual therapy in which people will be seen individually it involves management of medications by an experienced psychiatrist uh, and then the other important bit is that we involve the partners because a lot of people uh, the family members have got no idea how to deal with somebody with ptsd so we bring the partners together um, at uh, maybe around three or four sessions in that 17 days by saying that look um, tell us what you are struggle with and what other partners have struggled with and then we can help them to uh, point at the right direction in terms of how to support uh, the individuals with ptsd and then the other important aspect of the program is also integration and reintegration back into the workforce so we work very closely with the health and welfare of various departments or insurance agencies so that uh, the uh, members return to the workforce uh, as early as possible under medical supervision as well And then who can attend the these programs? So these programs can be attended by people who are uh, police members, uh, Australian Federal Police, uh, prison officers, uh, lifeguards, um uh, park rangers uh, we also have nurses who are uh, in working in the emergency department who have experienced ptsd volunteer firefighters anyone with um, uh, access to uh, or anyone who have in the front line who have experienced ptsd symptoms can attend these programs and then how would they find out how would they enroll in the program we are uh, launching our website very soon in the okay. next um, couple of weeks so stay tuned uh, so i'll have the tuned. link here yeah. yeah, so we will provide the link through this and once that link is actually there there will be a contact form and once people do the contact form we will help you as well so in terms of uh, i think a lot of people say well i don't know how to navigate through the police department we are happy to help you to navigate through uh, to find out appropriate care and appropriate help for you because help is there you just need to ask for that okay so we'll make sure all the links are there so in your um role as a psychiatrist you've treated many first responders i'm sure over the many years have you found that it's the combination of all those things that's mattered or has everyone got different journeys so they find that emdr work for them and group therapy or there's not sort of like a one stop treatment shop for for people absolutely and i think there are many people who refuses to do the group therapy by saying that well i'm not sitting in that group and you know i'm not going to do that like an american you know therapy sitcom you know so <laughs> the people have got that kind of an attitude which is fine look i don't think uh, one um, fit uh, does it for everyone so we and that's the advantage of our therapy is that we are we tailor that to the individual's need so some people i've got um, um you know a couple of officers who refuses to do the uh, the group program but has been happy to come and see the psychologist or the psychiatrist on a regular basis they take medications they do the appropriate thing so as long as they get one or other forms of therapy and as long as their quality of life is better that is what we are looking for so we will never uh, force anyone to say that well you have to have all these things to get them because there is no such evidence that um, you know that that actually works so uh, it has to be tailored to the individual's needs and have you got people that have said listen i don't want to be on medication so they've tried just the non medical treatments and succeeded and, and sort of had absolutely. their lives yeah. uh, recover from ptsd absolutely and i think uh, as a psychiatrist that is what i want to see uh, as well by saying that look medications are not the only answer so a lot of people do the journey through uh, doing um, trauma work uh, to through psychologists or through group work or through emdr or long exposure uh, and uh, it has proven to be uh, quite beneficial and they have gone back to work or i think a lot of people have realized after that um, therapy well this is not something which i want to continue my life and uh, i want to quit and they quit in their own terms rather than getting pushed out uh, through that by saying that well i found a freedom or i found that you know look i've been suffering silently why do i need to suffer like this i'm actually putting myself through tough times and my family as well so i might need to pause or just retire Mm. and they do it in their own terms and they are happy about that so why does emdr work 
because it's quite unusual. I mean, it, I mean, to people when they hear about it, because it it is getting a lot of. It mm. seems to be mm. um, a lot more awareness about EMDR. Yeah. Yes. Why does it actually work? And can you sort of describe it? Well, it is very difficult to know why it works. I think you know it was discovered by Shapiro when uh, he. Uh, was um, you know when Sh- when Shapiro was walking down the woods and uh, you know uh, the the movements of the eyes made sure that you know the symptoms are uh, are actually better. So uh, look, I, I don't know whether anyone knows the exact answer for that, but um, uh, it is something which people have talked about um, uh, in a that that's a good way to probably for people to describe their trauma. Um, you know, some of the people have got some horrific traumas, especially mm-hmm. people who have had sexual abuse or people have witnessed um, some uh, major crashes or have been witnessed um, uh, holdups and things like that. And they are absolutely shattered otherwise. So that gives a good medium for them to talk about it. So the answer is, short answer is, look, we don't know uh, mm-hmm. why it works. But uh, one good thing is that we know that it works. Yeah. And and it's about trying different things, That's having right. the courage to try That's different right. things. A lot of it? people don't tolerate DMDR either because I've actually had people just decompensating in EMDR as well. So it is not for everyone. Mm. Um, but uh, a good psychologist and a good psychiatrist can work hand hand um, and then work with people to see whether what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And so what's the latest research with first responders and PTSD that maybe first responders listening to this episode might might like to know about? Well, I think the latest research show, so, um, shows that uh, early identification is very important. Uh, leaving it late is not good. The latest research also shows that if you leave things late, there is a higher chance of people getting physical uh, ailments such as metabolic uh, syndrome, such as diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol. People have had heart attacks obesity, um, and they are all byproducts of uh, not just inaction or lack of exercise, but it is also PTSD. There was a, a major research done by uh, Professor Sandy McFarlane in 2017, which was published in the Medical Journal of Australia, which everyone can actually look or Google through and find out. Uh, it actually shows that Vietnam veterans who had PTSD had the highest incidence of metabolic profiles. So uh, I think that is a, a an important piece of um, research which has come out to show that uh, PTSD can be a global uh, problem in terms of global mental, you know, health problem in terms of if you don't um, uh, deal with that early on, you have physical problems as well. Virtual reality uh, is a, a new form of treatment. Are you doing a lot of that? Or? We haven't. In fact, um, we need, uh, you know, the Phoenix Centre in Melbourne, when I went for a conference a couple of years ago, was looking at trialing this in the military veterans. Uh, the the challenge is, uh, I think, one good thing about the corona is that, you know, the digital age has come mm. forward rather than, you know, we were actually 10 years behind, but now we are five years ahead. So we and need to... And I know to, in America, I think they do a lot of work with virtual... Yes, yes. So, so that is something which we are looking at to see whether we could access uh, some of the cameras and the goggles. Um, and the challenge will be to recreate uh, a lot of these images and incidents. And as you know very well, that incidents are not something which is unique. You know, they are unique. They have got a unique signature for that. And how do you recreate in a virtual uh, platform mm. is the challenge. But I'm sure um, it is something which is actually going on. And then there are some newer treatments which uh, are coming up in terms of uh, PTSD. So ketamine uh, has been uh, is a new form of treatment which has been coming up. Um, yeah, and um, I think the TGA approved uh, the kit as ketamine for depression, but it has also been proven to be quite beneficial in uh, PTSD as well. Uh, and um, a combination of treatments such as EMDR, prolonged exposure, individual therapy, family therapy, and group therapy, uh, we have found that they have got much better uh, outcome uh, rather than just employing one form of treatment. Yeah, and I think it's important to go back to the relationship between our mental health to our physical health, isn't it? Because I think it's it just gets frustrating that we see them as two different things when we're a whole person and that people need to understand that our mental health does underline a lot of our physical conditions. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and when you talk about metabolic, that's sort of like you're talking about cardiovascular risk yes. or cardiovascular disease, etc. Cardiovascular diseases, uh, yes, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, uh, risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, uh, any of those things are higher uh, if you have PTSD compared to people without PTSD. And then can you talk about a case that, I mean, people must think, oh, I've got PTSD, my life's over mm. sometimes, you know, all my career's over. Have you had... Uh, patients yourself that you've seen and they've been diagnosed and managed and they've gone back into the workforce? Mm -hmm. Look, I think, you know, I'll tell you about the story. I think this is a public story and uh, I don't think there is any confidentiality. I mean, uh, uh, one of our, um, uh, you know, we have a, a police officer who is now a member of parliament um, who attended, um, uh, who, who his first speech to the parliament in 2017 was his experience with PTSD. Mm. And what happened was that um, he had PTSD, he went through our program, um, and uh, then he realized that this is actually not what he wants to do. But he realized that he had so much of potential that he wanted to give back to the community. He stood for the election in 2017 wow. and won. And was that uh, the same year he was diagnosed? He was. I think he was about uh, a year before he was diagnosed. And then later on, I think in the uh, latest election, he got re-elected. I mean, this is a person who talks openly about his um, symptoms and his PTSD, and he advocates for the police officers and ambulance workers or emergency workers. So he had so much potential to give back to the community. So mm -hmm. PTSD doesn't mean that that's the um, you know end of road to a, a lot of people, uh, whereas a lot of people think that, um, well, once you have a diagnosis, that's the end mm. and that there is no going back. And I've had several uh, police officers uh, who are working in the country areas. Um, I've got a, a lady who was diagnosed with PTSD. And um, again, she was uh, in the public force. Uh, she was in the public media about uh, her diagnosis of PTSD and she talked very openly about the treatment she received and she received uh, a medal of honor uh, from the uh, from the prime minister for her gallantry work mm. so and she is still working uh, as a police officer so yeah. uh, i mean she goes through the a lot of people go through their up and down but that doesn't mean that that's the end of road for for a lot of people a lot of people what i have got in front of me are the people who have gone back to work rather than people who who have been kicked out of the job very few people does that i don't think the employers want to do that either uh, but a lot of people have also realized that that's this is not what they want to do mm. and they have gone in their own accord as well so i think it's it's about empowering people it is uh, about giving knowledge to people and then uh, everyone is intelligent and then it is for the individual and the family members along with the employer to sit around and say well what is the best thing that we need to do yeah is it about going forward or is it about leaving things and doing something else as well and is it a lifelong condition so once you're diagnosed and you're managing it can it prop up again well, it can. It can because, um, um, you know, some of the anniversaries, some of the triggers, some of the similar events which they read in the paper or see in the television or hear from, you know, people can bring back some of those memories. But again, uh, a good psychotherapy and uh, a good um, uh, group therapy sometimes can give um, tools to manage those symptoms in the future as well. And to keep a, an eye on some of those symptoms and then speak to the health professionals about if some of the symptoms re-emerge, then can some, how this can be managed. And then by delaying treatment, so you might get some people who say, you know, you know, they have good and bad weeks and it's sort of, you were saying there's a group of those PTSD client, uh, patients that maybe suffer for a long period of mm -hmm. time. What are the long-term health effects of someone that just sort of lives with PTSD rather than sort of managing it? Well, I think, um, again, studies have shown that there is a higher incidence of domestic violence in people who don't get treatment for PTSD. There's a higher chance of suicide uh, in uh, people who don't get treatment for PTSD, higher incidence of alcoholism and related health factors due to PTSD, uh, workplace issues, work performance issues due to the lack of awareness about PTSD. Um, people have uh, marital uh, friction and huge marital issues for people with PTSD. And like I said, um, uh, the long-term physical health factors such as uh, development of uh, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, myocardial infarction, stroke, or any of those things 
are uh, also potential um, problems in getting treatment at a very late stage. So how does someone support a loved one or a colleague going through PTSD? I think, you know, it is important to get as much of information as you need about PTSD. That's the most important thing. So coming to a group program like we offer, that we give you a lot of psychoeducation to the partners. Being non-judgmental, it's very important as well. Saying that you are a nutcase, you know, and use mm-hmm. the illness against uh, that person when there is a crisis. Um, to form a support group, there are many people who have actually formed support groups around partners with PTSD as well. Uh, and to seek own um, um, mental health help as well if they are suffering because a lot of people tend to have issues with anxiety and poor sleep when the partner also goes with PTSD as well. So, uh, and to recognize, and the other important, um, uh, you know, group of people who are in, should be managed are the children mm. with PTSD as well because we don't want to have what we call as a vicarious PTSD in which uh, you don't, the children experiences the PTSD through their parents as well. So it is important that um, if there are issues or if they find uh, problems in their children with behavioral issues, lack of sleep, um, you know, school refusal and things like that, uh, it's important that we need to recognize those things. So if they're saying, if a child's saying a parent that's, not being able to, for instance, drive a car yeah. or because of their own PTSD, can that affect the child? Just Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because children are like a sponge. They will take anything what the parents are going through. So, uh, And it has been recognized that um, kids of Vietnam War veterans did suffer a lot of anxiety and depression, alcohol and all those things due to their uh, uh, to their parents suffering from PTSD as well. So what are some practical ways that a first responder with PTSD can help themselves? I think it is important to know that your work will be still there, um, that you won't be kicked out of the job. Your health is very important. Um, and I think there is a a good important safety, which I would like to tell everyone is that you have, we have, to, you have to look after yourself so that you can look after other people. It's like going on an aircraft. You know, they say that, you know, f- you know, before you put the mask to somebody else, you have to put the mask to yourself so that you can look after other people. So that principle still applies to people with any mental health or health issues is that um, your health is important only when you look after yourself that you can look after well the other people as well. And I suppose because they're in a profession of helping people, that sometimes do you find that they find it even harder than to help themselves Absolutely. because they're just conditioned that yeah. it's their duty to care for others? Absolutely. What we call as the altruistic um, you know, thought in which you uh, put uh, you don't put yourself first, you put other people first. But I think um, we need to flip that a little bit by saying that after some time, after many years of working in the front line, sometimes if you see some of the symptoms as we described early on coming on, then it is important that you need to get that help first so that you can continue to look after other people and thereby you're um, prolonging the longevity of your working life rather than cutting it short. So what are the misconceptions of PTSD? So the misconceptions of PTSD are that um, people um, think that this is never going to go away, that there is no treatment, and uh, the PTSD will make them redundant from their jobs. PTSD diagnosis uh, can be quite stigmatizing, but at the same time, people have the fear that that will be the end of their career. Due to the stigma, they can be, you know, they can be subject to bullying, and that that can be just the perception of the person as well. And uh, PTSD itself, they will say that um, it is not their story; uh, it is somebody else's uh, story. That it is not going to happen to them, uh, and uh, it will take a while for them to understand that um, that they are going through PTSD. So, for a lot of people it can be a, a death bell to their um, career. So, so there will be a lot of resistance in terms of accepting that as a, as a reality for them. And have you found that though, that in practice though, once they actually come and seek help, that actually it can be the very thing by seeking help can actually lengthen their, their profession and their career? Absolutely. I think I've seen that um, again and again, uh, in my practice, uh, that we have seen that people have 
gone back to work people have extended their um, longevity in the work their marital um, um relationship has improved their relationship with kids have improved their relationship with colleagues have improved uh, their own relationship with their own body and mind would have improved significantly they will be more looking after their physical health there will be less amount of alcohol and uh, the quality of life improves significantly as well once they come in terms with the fact that they have a problem and that can be fixed so a lot of uh, emphasis recently is on education and making people aware that ptsd is an illness it can affect uh, both mind and body as well so can you be diagnosed with ptsd and continue to actually go to work you can uh, definitely i think um, uh, it needs some careful um, um restructuring of the work and that is where uh, it involves the health and welfare of the particular organization you work with or the human resource people most of the big employers such as wa police uh, the dfs the st john's ambulance uh, the prison officers all have returned to work programs and they have rehab officers occupational therapists uh, and welfare officers and uh, it is an important aspect to sit with um, you know the return to work people or the rehab people and figure out what difference can you can be made in the workplace for example somebody who is in the front line who's um in a major crash investigation uh, and it won't be ideal for them to go back to that kind of a situation so we may have to think about where else uh, we can put and the employers nowadays are very supportive and they are willing to get and take medical opinion and uh, opinion of the rehab people to figure out what is the best position for um uh, you know this member to go back to work on uh, sometimes that means that uh, you will be non operational and that again is a, a safety mechanism within the system so that you are uh, you are looked after uh, the community is looked after your colleagues are looked after uh, and you get enough time to get treatment as well and it has been recognized very well that time off from work with adequate support and with adequate um, treatment people can get back into operational within 6 to 12 months sometimes so uh, yes uh, it it will mean a bit of disruption but at the same time uh, it is again prolonging the life uh, of that individual in that particular organization and does debriefing after you know whether it's with colleagues after an event help because i mean i can only go to something like an example would be bondi rescue and quite often if there's a significant incident mm-hmm. they will debrief as a collective group well the uh, the jury is still out regarding the debriefing after each episode but again i think uh, i would say that um, something is better than nothing uh, whether it is um, a group debriefing or whether it is through psychological um, you know support system or health and welfare or with your colleagues or with your peers i think um, we have to do something about it just ignoring it by saying that well it's just one of a, one another job i'll be getting over it or you ignore the phone calls from colleagues or eap or health and welfare uh, is actually not a good thing as well the one important thing which i have been recommending and i think uh, i have pitched that in the wa police union conference in december was about keeping a diary of um, critical incidents that people go through and after each many years of looking through the diary we need to probably look at who has seen the most fatality who has seen most injuries who has seen been to uh, most horrific incidents and we have to triage it and then we have to have appropriate levels of care uh, but that is something which is still in a, in an early stage in an infancy stage but i hope that we can keep that diary and we can keep that uh, record um, somewhere uh, and uh, appropriate care can be given to the members even before they even ask it because it is unlikely that people will ask for it sometimes in a uh, uh, first responders group i think probably we may need to do it from a, an organizational point of view to make sure that we have debriefing at um, um various intervals so is that coming from a place of being proactive rather than reactive absolutely because would you do that as doctors you know you're keeping notes or of critical incidences so absolutely absolutely i think college of psychiatry has been uh, promoting peer review for many many years it is part of our um, continuing professional development scheme in which you have to uh, discuss some of these things uh, with your peers uh, and um, 
and it's been rolled out to other medical professionals but i'm not sure whether other um, agencies such as waypole or uh, dfs or st john's ambulance does any of these things but it's been proven to be one of the most beneficial in terms of um, peer support and a place where people can uh, talk about uh, some of these incidents in a very non-judgmental non-critical way Absolutely. So then to finish, what are three key messages that first responders listening to this podcast or even their family and friends that may be listening to this episode to, you know, try and educate them more around PTSD? What are some really important messages that we should remember about PTSD in first responders? I think, you know, the most important message I would like to give people is by saying that you need to get help early. So early identification is important early treatment is very important and once you do the early identification and early treatment the above 2 will help you in the longevity of work quality of life and your personal life as well so those are three things which i would like to tell people is by saying that by delaying the inevitable you're delaying um a your call you're delaying the problems uh, and um, probably Uh, it will catch up with you uh, even without you knowing and then uh, by the time it will be too late to do anything about it and then if you're listening to this episode and you think okay i i really do need to reach out for help but you're not really that confident or comfortable to maybe reach out to help in your workplace what would be your advice to those people i think you know when we are going to roll out our website um you know through this uh, podcast i think that's one where uh, you can probably send us a message by saying that look you have got some of these symptoms what would you like to do about that and we can help you in a very uh, confidential manner in a non judgmental manner which doesn't affect your work or uh, your other relationship and we can work with you and your gp and then give you some early directions uh, in which you can get help sounds great all right well thank you for your time today thank you A big thank you to Dr. Samuel for sharing his time and knowledge with us today on MediTalk and to learn more about Dr. Samuel please visit ptsdwa.com.au or speak with your GP or connect in with Beyond Blue at beyondblue.org.au soldieron.org.au or phone Lifeline on 131114 If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member Please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of MediTalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae@meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.